Welcome to Mandy the ABA and Aditi the OT's podcast. We are two women across two time zones from two cultures, two allied health fields offering two very different perspectives. Yet we have a common goal of breaking down barriers and creating breakthroughs to promote interprofessional collaboration. Welcome to all the collaborators out there. Oh my goodness, it's been quite a journey. Big shout out to all of you and the fact that you're still taking the initiative to listen to an alternative purview is so very impressive. I'm so happy and so glad. Now we know you don't agree with every aspect and quite frankly are probably very ticked off after some of the stances we take in some of our episodes. But Mandy and I are so grateful for your support and we are so glad that despite these differences, you still tune in week after week and choose to spend time with us because time is a non-renewable resource. Resource. There you go. Gosh, I can't think. So big hearty thank you to all of you. Indeed. Yeah. And from me as well. I get these messages frequently. I wake up in the morning and get messages from people saying they're listening to the podcast, that it's making a difference to them, that it's making them question things. Even had some feedback this week on how we could do things better, which we're very open to. And um, yeah, I'm just impressed that I'm hearing from speech pathologists and people outside of behaviour analysis taking an interest in what we're saying. And that's, that's why we started this in the first place. Exactly. So here, here to all our collaborators. All right, so today's episode is my all-time favorite, and it's on the dreaded topic of data and the reasons why it shouldn't be dreaded, that is. So OTs often struggle with translating the magic of what happens in OT sessions into that cold, hard, quantitative data. And we all know ABAs are known for their data collection, and they're so bloody good at it. So in this episode, we are going to strive to answer a few questions of how can you demonstrate the progress you see with your students? Why is data so important? And what are the current barriers of collecting data, whether it's qualitative or quantitative? And of course, the types of data collection out there. So OTs and ABAs can really come together, I think, in this instance and really find that perfect juxtaposition of understanding each other and helping each other grow in this area. So let's dive in and start with a few resources. I found this amazing resource, which I really didn't even know existed, but it's through the AOTA, our OT association in the US, and it's a progress monitoring documentation. It's actually labeled as being for virtual therapy, but it was so good and it was so detailed. I loved it. And I thought I would share that as a resource for OTs. It talks about identifying outcomes, measuring data, how to count like count baseline data, quantitative and qualitative and um, documentation. So take a peek at that if you get a chance, if you're an OT. And Mandy, I think you have one, right? Uh, yeah, I wanted to. It's, it's a combined shout out and resource. <laughs> Uh, So two birds with one stone. And this week, my shout out and my resource is from Central Reach Institute, uh, which provides professional development and training, in particular for those interested in data and data collection and the standard acceleration chart. And for those BCBAs a little bit like me who might be um, needing some CEUs um, before their registration comes up, which mine does very soon, um, it's an excellent place to uh, go and 
do some professional development at a very reasonable price, I think. And I'm saying that not without any, uh, not get by getting any kickback. It's just that um, I've managed to locate them. And, and so, yeah, go have a look there. Uh, Central Reach Institute or part of Central Reach, which also now owns Chartlytics, which is an online standard acceleration tool, which many of us use. And um, yeah, that's my shout out this week. All right, brilliant. So uh, let's start the conversation with behavior analysts. Why, Mandy, are they so good at it and caught up with measurement and data? Uh, Well, I guess the obvious answer is that ethically we're required and therefore obligated to demonstrate that our interventions are effective um, and evidence-based. And it's absolutely impossible to do that without data. And so, um, you know, you must know what's occurring before you start your treatment and what behavior underscore baseline data and then what happened after your intervention and then being able to demonstrate that the work you did resulted in that change. And so you can't do that by guessing. You can only do that by some measurement and that's why we care deeply about that. As a professional in this field, you know, my passion for this comes about because of the journey with my own daughter and therefore um, parents that come to me having had a lot of treatment for their kids and with absolutely no data to determine whether something had worked or not worked. And I guess it pains me when, you know, having spent years and years and years of treatment, there is no data left behind to determine where all of that time and money went. So um, it's not just our profession that cares about evidence. It's, you know, every field really. But the question is, how do you take data how do you analyse it and how do you determine that the intervention that you've applied has been effective? And I think there's no other area than autism where intervention is often lengthy and um, expensive and time is so precious where, you know, data is so important. So that's why we care so much. And then because we are a science and, um the science of behaviour analysis is like any other science, and that is we use data to measure the effectiveness of what we do. That's it in uh, – it's not so short, is it? I think it's going to be short. <laughs> and Mandy, I never say anything never in just a few words. No, that's so true. <laughs> but that's okay. Uh, that's why it's an um, effective podcast because if you just gave me one-word answers, I'd be talking all the time. So. <laughs> but, you know, I want to add to that because um, data is what sold me on fit learning. When I first learned about fit learning and I saw the data collection system, I was like, this is why I want my son in fit learning because I'd done so many other, and I say this loosely, tutoring or academic programs, but they didn't have the data to support. It was sort of this placebo in my head as a mum that I was, oh, well, you know, Tristan's going to tutoring, so I don't have to worry about it, but I wasn't seeing the results And when I learned about fit learning, that's what sold me. So isn't that interesting? Full circle. Yeah, I guess it was your first experience with, you know, the standard acceleration chart, which I will continue to um, mention until people start to look at what standard measurement is and why it's so important. Um, We'll talk a little bit more about that later on. But, yeah, what you were observing there was um, the use of the standard acceleration chart to track performance 
and therefore, you know, make people that are working with your child and with children in general accountable for what they do. And the standards solution chart, there is nothing that makes you more accountable what you, for what you do because the data is unfolding before your eyes as you teach. And so, yeah, you're right. It's the first real time in my um, approach to fit learning. I had used a standard acceleration chart before for some academic skills, but I never had applied standard measurement to all of the goals that I'd been teaching to the students that I worked with. And so, yeah, I too was enlightened by the use of a standard measurement for everything that is being taught from. Uh, and you can put everything on a standard acceleration chart from trying to change your inner behaviour to teaching ADLs to academic skills, you name it, you can put it on a standard acceleration chart and you should. <laughs> there you go. And yeah. that's, what we, that's why we're here today to talk about measurement. Exactly. And, and me, I'm a big lover of the standard acceleration chart and I've incorporated it into OT for a long time, but it was not easy. So let me tell you, Mandy, some of the barriers in OT Great. to data yeah, collection. Let's do that. So time, obviously, like every OT out there thinks they don't have time to collect data, which I don't fault them because, again, you know, often we have 15 minutes a week with a client. So when you think about data in that context, you're like, oh, blast, how am I going to do that? So that's one of the um, issues. There was no structured universal methodology that we were taught. Never. It was very sort of lax and um, very open format collect data, but nobody shows, showed us how to do it. So I think that was a huge issue. Um, variance in settings. So OTs work in a plethora of settings. Hopefully you all know that by now. Um, but you know, like, so if you're in a medical setting or if like I, hand therapy, there we have a lot of quantitative data because you've got all these measurement tools that give us data to inform our decisions. So in those settings, it's not as a prominent gaping hole, I guess, as in others. But we are at the mercy of the software also because we're mandated to use a certain type of data collection in certain settings, especially the medical software. So we can't really deviate from that. And, you know, I've worked in the school setting and even there, when I put in a goal, it doesn't give me a lot of options. It'll give me like attempted trials and the completed trials or percent correct. Those are my options and that's it. So we are at the mercy of that. And, you know, again, because we're so holistic, we work in mental health, we work in FISDIS, which is physical dysfunction, you know, so many areas of OT that I think the field itself feels like, how can we have a standardized universal way of measuring data for OTs? So that's one of the main reasons I got so interested in behavior. I wanted to understand and learn how to measure behavior because I thought, you know what? Regardless of all these settings, behavior applies to everybody. And we as OTs measure occupation, which is obviously a behavior. So that was my first attraction to understanding and measuring behavior. And I thought if I got better at measuring behavior, in all these settings, I could really be a better OT. So I guess I ask you, Mandy, where does one start as an OT if you've never collected data? Good question. I, it shouldn't just be, you know, the reason I may sound a little fired up here today about the use of standard measurement is that 
I've just listened to possibly about four hours of Rick Cabena and just a big shout out to you, Rick, <laughs> at the moment because I just, I just feel so um, fired up as a result of listening to some of his professional development, which within the field of behaviour analysis, a, a lot of behaviour analysts do not use standard measurement to track data either. So we shouldn't just send this message just to OTs. It's to, you know, it's to all professionals that want to show that the what they're doing is effective. This is, you know. So, um, you know, one of the things he says is, you know, you'd be pretty upset if you were having cancer treatment or medical treatment of some sort and your doctor told you that he didn't have time to take data, you know. When it matters what we should be looking at is not someone's account of what's occurring, but actually what's occurring in, in your treatment. So, and the use of percent correct is not a validated measure to determine whether something's effective or not. If you want to learn more about why percent correct is not a good measure, seek out Rick's work. It's on Central Rich. He's, he will talk about it anywhere, anytime. And you can, if you can search YouTube, you'll also find his name about why percent correct is not an effective measure. But getting back to what you said there about where we can start, well, I, I guess the first place to start is to determine that there's something that you can learn that improves you being able to demonstrate that you're, what you're doing is working. That's the first point, point, is to decide that this is something that's important to you and there are lots of ways to learn and to seek it, seek out ways of incorporating measurement and I've already mentioned Central Rich, which is a good place to start. You can also reach out to me or Aditi if you want to be directed to some study or, or where to get started. But the first thing is, I guess, in order to measure something, you must define first what it is that you're teaching or, you know, a behaviour that you're trying to increase or some behaviour that you're trying to reduce. That's the first point because unless you can determine and define what it is that you're measuring, you're not going to be able to graph it or chart it. Um, so it gets us back to our old discussion, Aditi, of what is behaviour. <laughs> and if we can't, you know, if we don't start there, then we we have nothing to chart or to take data on, right? Mm. And, you know, when we're dealing with general terms like anxiety or boredom or frustration, you know, those things are not something that are easily defined. And so they're not really behaviours. They're, you know, in order for something to be measurable and therefore chartable or graphable, it has to be something that you and I can both observe and decide that we're measuring the same thing. And I guess that's where the area, the science of behaviour analysis starts, and that is, what is behaviour? And because we love Og Lindsley so much, Aditi, I'll go back to the dead person's test, which I just kind of remember what episode we talked about that in, probably a few episodes, but, you know, it's a simple test to decide. If a dead person can't do it, then it is behaviour, and if a dead person can do it, it's not behaviour. That's a very good place to start to decide if, you know, you are dealing with something that you can define and measure. So that's where to start, is to determine what it is that you're actually teaching. When it comes to, uh, we're going to do some examples later on, but if, you know, you are using that holistic approach, sometimes you're challenged by, you know, are you just trying to get a student more engaged or more motivated or, you know, if there's something that you are just a general terminology, it's going to be really difficult to measure that. So you've got to decide what it is that's the treatment, what's the behaviour that you're trying to increase or reduce, and then define it so that you can measure it. Okay, so typically in OT, we would start with a goal. And I, and I 
again, this is one of the problems, I think, in OT, because we have several ways to collect information on a goal, right? So um, yeah, <laughs> this is, again, the problem and not always the solution. There are many different ways. But can I just say something there? Because I absolutely love that. Very frequently, I look at people that have had behavioural analytics services before and actually there was no goals at all. Like there was therapy, but they actually didn't have any goals. So I actually think it's a really good place to start anywhere in life actually is, you know, what do we want for this student? Like do we want him to be able to independently occupy himself for periods of time? Do we want him to be able to independently tie his shoes? So goals are really important. But the problem is a goal is not a behaviour. A goal that I've seen in OT before when working with my own OT is like, for instance, the student will be able to, you know, handwrite the full uppercase and lowercase alphabet by the end of term two. That's a fantastic goal to have. But the question is, what are you going to teach first and how are you going to measure it? How are you going to determine when that goal has been achieved? And, um, and there's some, you know, some critical elements that comes with the use of the standard acceleration chart that would help you you know, be able to achieve that goal. But I love that you have goals. I think that's really awesome because then you know, you know, if you measure it, you know if you're achieving your goal or if you have to change something, that it's not a realistic goal. And if you only have, you know, 50 minutes a week and your data shows that you're making very slow progress towards that goal, you might know that your goal is unreasonable or that you're absolutely crushing it. But so, so goals is, a, yeah, it's a problem because it's not necessarily measurable, but it's a great place to start. Oh, yes. I mean, I'm not saying goals aren't good. What I was saying is that we have different ways of writing the goal. I always wish there was a standardized way, but there are three main ones that we use. First is the Roomba. It's R-H-U-M-B-A. How relevant is it? How long? Understandable, measurable, behavioral, and achievable. Then the second one is COAST, C-O-A-S-T, Client, occupation, assist level, specific, and time bound. So my favorite is the SMART goal, which is significant, measurable, achievable, relates to the person, and is time-based. So all of these are pretty good, and they all have a time component to it. Yeah, but you say that, but how many professionals that you've worked with actually track time in a goal? No, Outside of academic tasks. No, they don't. Yeah. They don't. So in every one of those, time is important. But most of the time, people don't measure behaviour within a time interval. They take some deviation from that and, you know, summarise it in percent correct or trials or exactly. somewhere along the line. The most important measure is that somebody can do it within a specified period of time gets lost. And that's, yeah, it's a, it's a great shame. But the goal, this goal is actually more like a overall goal. This time component here is like, well, you know, we'll learn how to, I don't know, put his shoes on within two months. It's more of a broad right. goal. And then what we typically do, at least in the school setting where I work, it's uh, we have a broad overarching goal and then we have objectives. Now, those are supposed to be measurable. But you're yeah. right, there's rarely a time component. It's always like two or four trials or 80% accuracies I see. So I think what OTs struggle with, and I struggle with this too, um, because I do love the goals. I think they're great. But then I'm like, okay, I've got to pass out what I need to pinpoint and target. 
What sort of strategies do you do to achieve that? I guess the first thing is, you know, in precision teaching, of course, there's other ways we're doing it, but we talk about component skills of a bigger goal. You know, when it comes to reading, for instance, component skills of that are sounding out letters and, you know, sounding out words um, and then reading whole words and then, you know, reading sentences and reading whole passages. So, you know, the overall goal might be to have your student read at 180 words per minute, but obviously you don't start there if the student doesn't have any reading. It would be like asking someone to run a marathon when they can't run around the block. So, you know, you have to come back and go, okay, if this is what this student can do right now, and an example might be, say, writing the alphabet, if we start with that, like the first thing to do is to define what you're going to count as a correct and an error in relation to the formation of a letter. But actually, OTs are pretty good at that, in my experience. You know, directionality of the letter, starting point, spacing of the letter, sizing of the letter, all of those things. And then determine what the client is actually doing right now. And again, by setting a timer, you can, you know, count that over time. So um, literally giving my OT just a timer in amongst some of their assessment they did, you know, changed what they were looking at. So the first point is if you want the student to be writing the full alphabet by the end of term two, if you're starting at the beginning of the year, and the student can't form any letters correctly, you know, that might be a really unrealistic goal because you don't want to train every letter at once in general. You know, if you have students that have, you know, they're not forming letters correctly and there's, as you know, 26 letters in the alphabet, uppercase and lowercase, there's a lot of letters and they all have different starting positions and, you know, uh, different directions, not all of them, but a lot of them. So that might be a really unrealistic goal, but, you know, then you have to decide where to start. Are you going to teach two letters or three letters? And then, you know, if you take good data, you'll be able to determine, well, what is this student's learning rate like? Are they able to master a letter within a week or do they take more than one week to master one letter? So, you know, if you start with a component skill and decide what you're going to teach, then you'd be able to determine whether that goal is reasonable or not. And if you use a standard acceleration chart, you'll have really good data on how long it's taking for a student to learn a goal. But then you have to have a measure of mastery as well. What What are you going to determine is mastery for a specific goal? And I guess that's why I love precision teaching so much is that precision teachers for a long period of time, 40 plus years, have been determining what mastery of a goal is. When something is fluent, easy and effortless and that a student is going to maintain that over time. And that is just based on how often a student can do it within a time interval. So, you know, we've given these examples before, but from all of the collaboration for teachers and people that have used the standard acceleration chart over a long period of time, they've worked out aims that you can use to determine when a, a behaviour is fluent and, you know, is going to maintain over time. Unfortunately, most of the field of behaviour analysis use percent correct, which is not an empirically validated measure. And so it, it loses how many opportunities the student had to respond how many exact corrects and errors there were and what the rate of performance was with in a time interval. So if you use a standard acceleration chart and you apply, you know, how many opportunities the student performed in a period of time, it'll give you a really good trajectory of how long it's going to take to master that goal. So that's the starting point is, you know, start to look at what your component skills are of reaching that goal and start to do some teaching and take some data to say, wow, 
this student is taking a long time to meet criteria for this goal. If, for instance, you would, might want, if you look at um, precision teaching aims, and there's a lot of people that publish aims, but Rick Cabena, I've referred to his data before, he has published aims, and I, I will, we've put that in the resources before, but we'll do it again. And things like forming letters, for instance, we know when students can write those at between sort of 70 to 100 letters per minute, that that is a mastery criteria for letters. So that's a starting point, Aditi. <laughs> I'll stop there and let you ask some more questions. I think in OT, we have to remember that a lot of our students are have physical dysfunctions. And so the aims may not relate as well. And so the OTs that I work with that we're trying to incorporate precision teaching with, what I tell them is, you know, just grab a peer and see how they do in a minute mm -hmm. with writing, for example. And then based on your clinical judgment, you can adjust that score to fit the student's needs. Because we do work with a lot of CP students. So you have to sort of put that variable in as far as, you know, they may have tremors or they just have tone issues that may, you know, impede their performance. So it's really very easy. As long as you've got a peer to emulate, it's very easy to figure out a name. That's what I do in the school setting. I don't always refer to the um, published names, but I might just grab someone from the classroom and that helps too. So um, the other thing I wanted to point out before we go too far into this, you know, time was a huge barrier identified in OT for taking data. And I've been taking data using precision teaching and standard acceleration chart for the whole year this in school setting. And I see students 15 minutes a week or 20 maximum. And I've been able to take data simply because of the reason that Mandy highlighted, you know, using that timer, because you're really using short intervals, one minute, 30 seconds, 15 seconds. And so you're able to do multiple timings. And one thing that I found really interesting, Mandy, and I'm sure you, well, you've been taking data for a long time, so maybe you didn't. But when I started taking data, the sheer act of taking data with a student improved their performance. I was like, oh my gosh, because they are so much more aware of their own performance. Have you found that in your practice? I mean, yeah, for so many reasons, of course, because you can give feedback to the student all of a sudden, you know how many responses they engaged in. You're getting immediate feedback about what you did that resulted in an improved performance. Yeah, for every reason under the sun, taking data in anywhere else in life almost other than fields that don't take data yeah. is important for so many reasons. You can't improve what you can't measure. So yeah, it's, uh, but it's evident to the student as well because they also get feedback about their improved performance. Yeah. And it motivates them. Yeah. And it should too, because hopefully you are providing reinforcement or reward or feedback contingent on improved performance, on them getting better, not getting worse. Right. And so, or that if it's not getting better, you change something. That's the important thing. If last week they could do it five times and this time they can only do it four times or last week they could do it 20 times and this week they can only do it 10 times, that's a more you know, yeah. impactful change. Something has occurred and, you know, you want to be able to account for that. So the other aspect I noticed is, um, you know, so there are some students that I see once a week for 15 minutes. 
I would just take data and I'm like, oh, I don't know how much progress they're going to make because I only see them once a week. The other students, I was able to engage the paras, the teacher's aides, or even the teacher in one situation and the parent to do the intervention, which was, you know, one minute interventions and take data on it. And I thought, wow, I'm going to see a really big difference. And I really didn't. I mean, yes, the progress was slower for the student that I only took data once a week, but they still were improving. But incorporating that sort of professional expertise model that we have in OT, where, you know, we train caregivers to carry on the intervention and come in and change the intervention. That was so easy to do with precision teaching. It was seamless. And it was so quick for me to train everyone. It literally took me five minutes to show them how to chart and, you know, taking number correct and incorrect. So it's definitely doable for OTs. That's what I've noticed um, having used it for the past year in practice. But I did want to ask you one more thing. Uh, Fluency. Mm -hmm. You know, everyone thinks about fluency in reading, but for things like handwriting or ADLs, nobody really thinks about fluency. Is that part of the repertoire for all ABA therapists or mainly the ones who do precision teaching? Well, funnily enough, you know, when I was based in Indiana, there were um, behavioralists there using, you know, standard acceleration charts for ADLs. Um, In particular, we've talked about this before, like the big six goals. But when they got to programs like language programs or less structured programs, all of a sudden, all of that precision and data mission and use of the standard acceleration chart went out the window. So there were elements of that ABA school where they used it and knew it really worked, but then they didn't carry over to use that across all of their programming. So, you know, as as we've said before, you can chart anything on a standard acceleration chart if you can measure it and define it, measure it, then you can chart it. Um, So absolutely, I, in general, and Rick Cabena will, you know, he's done a lot of data. He's taken, for instance, I think 4,400 papers he looked at from oh, Jabba, the main, the main <laughs> journal within behaviour analysis, and something like 85% of them didn't use standard measurement, and that's what a standard acceleration chart is. Mm-hmm. It's got a, uh, for those of you that don't know what it is, it's got a, a fixed X and Y axes, and it's always the same. So as opposed to what I call a stretch-to-fill chart where you can alter the X and Y axis to make your data look better than it really is. And, you know, data on those types of charts are not comparable because everybody does them differently, even though there is within our field ways of using standardised charts. Most people don't. And so the data is not comparable and it's often misleading because people stretch things to make them look better. But taking that off, um, yes, in general, in behaviour analysis, we don't use this either, scarily enough. We don't use what precision teachers know about standard measurement. And so, yeah, there's a lot that can be done. I guess I just want to go back to something that you said there, Aditi, because uh, yeah, first of all, I was so excited that you're training other people to chart. That's awesome. But second of all, I guess what I wanted to say about only having, because, you know, when you say I've only got 15 minutes a week, I, you know, my stomach starts to churn, my heart starts to <laughs> race, and I'm like, wow. But I guess, you know, what's exciting about using a chart is it should and I guess, does make it realistic about what you are going to do with that 15 minutes of time. Because, you know, if you're not seeing progress on a goal in that 15 minutes, I guess what happens is you 
slice back or you teach something, you know, you decide to reduce the number of goals you're working on. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. Like I had a student who the goal that was not assigned by me, it was the previous OT, was to write her name. And when I did my 15 minutes of OT with her, she did not know the names of any of the letters of her Mm. name or the alphabet. So how can I even start on just writing her name if she doesn't even recognize the letters? Because then she's just writing symbols, right? So I had to absolutely slice back. So what I ended up doing is reaching out to the team and the mom and saying, I would like to amend the goal. And uh, we started working on first recognizing letters uh, before we moved to that. So yes, absolutely. Excellent. Great. And that's what it should do for everybody because, you know, when you are only seeing students infrequently, that's okay, provided that the time you're spending with them, well, I mean, obviously it's not okay. The goal would be to have as much time as you need to be effective, but in an area where resources are such that you can only see a student once a week, yeah, you want to make sure that the goal is realistic in the time that you have with them. And often when I see, well, any report, but in particular the reports I'm looking at are from OTs outside my organisation, on the goals for a student, they're enormous goals. You know, maybe some of the goals that they have in there are like 10, would take 10 years to teach a goal. Like, you know, to teach somebody to be, in inverted commas, independent in their daily life. It's an enormous goal that will be written in this report. So, you know, that has to come back to something that's realistic to teach if you're only seeing the student once a week. So measurement will make you do that yep. because it makes you accountable for the data. And if people that you are collaborating with ask for data, you have to demonstrate that what you're doing is working. Yep, um, so that's a fantastic feedback that I love that you're able to. Yeah, and it's it seems a daunting task mm-hmm. because when you first look at a chart, like a standard acceleration chart, there's a lot of information on that chart. But you know, all you're doing is counting how many occurrences of the behaviour occurred within a time interval. It's not that hard. I've taught parents that I work with to chart within half an hour, for instance, being able to run math facts with their kids at home. I'm collaborating with um, someone right now, a parent, and she's doing an amazing job of putting that data on a chart and getting super excited when she's seeing like 100% improvement in a number of days when her daughter hasn't been able to learn math facts before. So it's very possible. If a parent can do it, you'd absolutely got to assume that people that teach these skills and should care about the effectiveness of what they're doing can learn to take data and chart it. Brilliant point, Mandy. Parents can do it and students can do it. I have my son taking data on his own behavior. So I'll give you an example. He is the type who will drink a glass of water and then leave the cup on the table and walk off. Pick up something, put it on the table and walk off. Like just doesn't pay attention to those things. So I come home and there's like five glasses, 50 items everywhere. So I started telling him, I'm like, all right, Julian, I want you to take data on how many things you leave out. So when I come home from work, he and I would walk together around the house and we would count how many items. And just the sheer fact that he started taking data on that changed from the next day. But then, you know, I added a reinforcement contingency, which we're going to talk about next episode um, that changed it even further. But he now charts every day how many items he leaves out because it brings that attention and awareness to it too. So parents can do it and students can do it depending on their age and ability, of course. But I wanted to uh, jump into a case example 
I thought we could take a goal that OTs might do and uh, behavior therapists might do too and see how we would approach things. So let's take this example of zipping a jacket. This is a goal that we might both work on and OT would say, Johnny will fasten a two-part zipper without assistance on three of four trials. So that yeah. would be the overarching goal. What might an ABA goal look like for that matter? Well, can I clarify that and make it a precision teaching goal? Sure. <laughs> Go for it. Uh, because an AB, a traditional ABA goal might be some horrible percent correct in, across, say, two sessions. Uh, this is a traditional ABA goal that I've seen would be to get a skill 80% or better, sometimes 90% correct in two sessions in a row and then a third session with a novel therapist, for instance. But that takes out all of the things that we just talked about before, which is opportunities to respond across you know, a time interval. So basically what we would do is determine how many, what fluency was on zipping a jacket you know, across, I don't know, maybe 30 seconds or a minute endurance. Mm -hmm. So you want what we know about fluent performance is that you can do it for a period of time without making errors. So straight away there, your error rate is, you know, one in four. Now, admittedly, this is not a, you know, the consequences of not being able to zip your jacket is not, you know, you're not going to get run over or you're not going right. <laughs> to uh, de-lodge de a retina or something like that. But still, if you're going to teach something, you may as well teach it so that the student has it forever and never lose it and, and also be able to do it in a number of other tasks because we know when we teach things like that, teaching a zipper to fluency, that's going to show up in opening and closing your pencil case and, you know, fine motor skills that require the use of a pencil grip, for instance. So if you're going to do it, you may as well get you know, value for the skill that you're teaching. So therefore, you know, what I would do is exactly what you were saying before is take a fluent performer already that already has that skill and decide if you're going to use a 30-second interval might be enough and see how many times a fluent or competent, is there a such thing as a zipper error, <laughs> can, <laughs> can do that in 30 seconds. And so, you know, you record how many correct responses you might do that across different types of zippers and different jackets, etc. And then you'd say, oh, this is what a person can do without making errors across this time interval. That's fluent performance because this person is able to zip their jacket under multiple contingencies with different types of zips, etc. So this is what fluent performance looks like. So let's just assume one, two, three, four, five, six, I don't know. Do you want to say 20 in 30 seconds maybe? So the count is your aim is 40 per minute, something like that. I haven't measured, I haven't actually measured that goal before. So my criteria might be that the student can do it at 40 responses per minute across 30 seconds, two or three times in a row, and the first timing the next time it's done. So in other words, without a practice of that skill on a later day, on a day, a number of days away, the student can do it again without making errors. And then I might test for that for retention over a period of time. I would test it once a week for a period of time and make sure that that rate um, hasn't dropped. So, you know, that's a very different contingency because what I'm looking at is I don't want my student to make one error in every four because uh, that means they're practising 
and making errors. And very frequently, if you've seen students that make errors on <laughs> zipping, they give up pretty quickly or they ruin the zip, mm-hmm. even worse, because then they break a jacket. So, yeah, so you want a student to be able to easily do that without making errors. Um, so that would be how a, a precision teacher would measure um, mastery of the goal. Now, that's exactly what um, I would do too. I think that's that's very clear and cut for um, OTs working on Zipper. And I think what I found is exactly what you said. Students, they, we get work refusal because it's too hard. That's yeah. what we're encountering right now. And that actually brings us to what our next episode is about. Um, reinforcement Boom. and uh, the consequences. We're going to discuss the ABCs of behavior, uh, why what happens after behavior is important in determining whether the behavior will occur again, right? So if you have a student working on the zipper and they're just, they're having all these errors, they're not going to want to work on it again. So this is why we have to understand the why of behavior. And also we're going to discuss whether there's a sensory aspect to it, does it just feel good or is it there's is there another reason for that behavior? And we will discuss some, some sensory alternatives when it is a sensory related behavior. Did you want to add anything there, Mandy, about next episode? One of my maybe pre-learnings or things that I used to get stuck on with OT is that there was a big assumption that everything was sensory and that behaviors that may look like they're sensory, like things like eye poking or, you know, finger picking and those things, that there was an assumption that there was a, in inverted commas, sensory need or requirement to engage in that behaviour. So just implore everybody to have an open mind that there are other things that could be reinforcing that behaviour. There could be attention or escape from demands or it could be multiply maintained Mm -hmm. in that it started out as a sensory need and then resulted in other consequences and so yeah I just want to implore everybody to come and listen to next week's episode to open when I say everyone I say people that have kind of this underpinning that a lot of behavior is maintained by sensory need to come and listen to our episode. Okay indeed well the key points from today's episode are that specifically for OTs I want to point out that Precision teaching, there is a bite-sized approach. You don't have to take data on everything. It can literally take you five minutes. It's not an all-or-nothing process. Um, it's easy to learn, simple. It provides a visual. So it's not just a bunch of numbers that you're you know, spending time on. You can still do your OT interventions and take data. That is the beauty of precision teaching. And it's so important. Not just for OTs, because I don't know what the percentage of behavioralists are that use standard measurement in their interventions, but it's a very small percentage. So the call out is for anyone that wants to use standard measurement in what they do, which is what most sciences do, please go and listen to Rick Cabina's talks on why you would want to use a standard acceleration chart. Thank you for clarifying, because it's really not only only so important for the client, but our profession, you know, any profession, it provides integrity and it really is integral to the part of our ethics of providing evidence-based practice. So go take some form of data, at least. All right. So thank you so much, everybody, for listening. Remember, the most valuable resource we have is each other as usual without collaboration our growth is limited to our own perspectives so hashtag collaboration over competition until next time bye bye from the windy city
and Hooroo from Down Under. <laughs>